Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Walk. After years of geopolitical maneuvering and delays because Beijing arbitrarily detained two Canadians for more than 1,000 days, the federal government has finally announced last week that it was banning Huawei from the Canadian telecom landscape. Beijing has condemned the move as a form of, quote, political manipulation that it says has been carried out in coordination with the United States. Joining us to talk about why the decision took so long and what it means for Canada is Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino. Nice to see you, Minister. Thanks for joining us. Nice to be back in person. This was perhaps the most long-awaited national security decision that, that I can recall in recent recent history. It took your government years to make this decision and you came out and said Huawei is a threat to national security. It's what you've called a high-risk vendor. If it was such a risk, what took so long to make this decision? Well, it was an important decision that we needed to get right. We were always anxious to make it, um, but it required taking a look at the technology, also assessing the geopolitical landscape, as you alluded to in your introduction, uh, consulting with our allies, including Five Eyes Partners. Um, but we arrived at it, and what we are doing, as you know, is um, making sure that we uh, prohibit on a go-forward Huawei ZTE from operating on 3G, 4G, 5G, and beyond technologies. Why is this important? Because Canadians use online uh, for their daily lives, whether it's for banking or for healthcare, uh, but we've got to do it safely. I understand when the two Michaels were in prison being concerned about their well-being, but they've been back for about six months. What was the lag there? Because national security experts are saying, Huawei's publicly saying, they've been backdoor updating their software that entire time. And there's another, I think, two years before it's pulled out. That seems like a significant risk profile. Well, I want to make sure that we decouple uh, the situation with the two Michaels. And we're obviously very pleased that uh, they were released with the review of uh, these two particular actors and the, and the telecommunications so there's sector. There's no relationship between the timing there? Uh, no, there's not. And what we used the time for was to review the technology, to uh, review these two particular actors and the relationship with foreign governments. And we took the time that was necessary to get the decision right. I think a lot of people were surprised to hear that, that that was the case because it seems like the recommendations were in for months and months and months from the national security outfits and from other Five Eyes members. But even if you ban Huawei, which you are now, obviously a lot of Canadians welcome that decision. But there's still a lot of big holes in cybersecurity that Canada can be hacked through by China um, that are not Huawei. What are you doing realistically to try to shore up Canadian cybersecurity so that Canada is not a target for espionage and intervention from Beijing? Well, a number of things. First, we've put in place measures to protect our telecommunications sector now. But going forward, we're going to introduce legislation that will uh, ensure that we can update the list uh, of potential belligerent and hostile actors, as well as um, introduce a framework that will ensure that we're securing our telecommunications um, sector. You called this a high-risk vendor, but you didn't give a definition for what that is. What's the definition <clears throat> of a high-risk vendor? Well, someone that poses um, a national security threat to a point where they can't be operating in our networks. Does that mean that there are other high-risk vendors the Canadian government would look at banning, for example, from mining uh, or from, for example, biological research, other areas that could have direct national security implications for Canada if a Chinese-owned state entity or heavily Chinese uh, government-influenced state entity wanted to get involved and buy? Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a very important question, and that's why one of the legislative things that we're going to do is allow ourselves to update the list, but more importantly, um, introduce a framework that will allow us to protect our critical infrastructure. So whether we're talking about the financial sector, 
um, you know, our natural resources sector, you know, essentially uh, the, the, the vital parts and organs of our economy. We need to make sure that we're protecting them and making sure that we're updating our legislative tools to do just that. When do you think that's going to happen? Um, we have an intention to do it quickly. I mean, certainly as it relates to um, Huawei and ZTE, um, we want to make sure that that's done quickly and then that we are taking the practical steps uh, to ensure that Huawei and ZTE are removing their equipment uh, from our existing networks. Canada has lagged far behind the other Five Eyes countries. Are you concerned that that's jeopardized our relationship with the Americans, the Australians? They've moved on to do a number of national security and counter China initiatives without us. On the contrary, I think um, this decision uh, and the statement obviously aligns uh, very much with the posture of our Five Eyes partners, including the United States, with whom we have a very strong relationship. Uh, there are uh, robust areas of collaboration around intelligence sharing, and as it relates to these two, uh, you know, these particular actors and the risks that they present to our national security, I think that we're very much um, in a position that is in alignment with them. You're the public safety minister. A lot of experts say they believe that China is the biggest threat to Canadian national security. The chief of the defense staff has said that he thinks it's a significant threat. Do you believe that China is the biggest threat to Canada's national security? Well, there's no doubt it's a complex relationship and we have to have eyes wide open and what threats exist within um, online telecommunication sector are very much uh, informing um, a number of strategies and decisions that we're deploying. At the end of the day, this is about protecting Canadians. It's about protecting our economy. It's about protecting our telecommunications sector. And that's precisely why we made the statement that we did. There are a number of Canadians, of course, who live and work in China. They're there for business. They're there because they have family connections. I've spoken to a number of them who are quite concerned about whether they could potentially be arbitrarily detained in some kind of retaliation. What is your advice to Canadians who are in China now or who are thinking about traveling to China? Well, our position is that uh, Canadians and their rights uh, should be protected and upheld uh, wherever they are around the world. And uh, we will continue to do that um, uh, as a paramount value. Um, we did it during the, uh, the, uh, the course of the detention, the arbitrary detention of the two Michaels. Um, it took a lot of work, but we got them back. And uh, it's important that we uh, stand up uh, for who we are as a, as a democracy. I understand that you're saying the rights should be respected, but should and are are two different things. Are, are you worried about the safety of Canadians who might be in China? Well, I think certainly, um, you know, there are cert there are parts of the world in which we advise Canadians uh, to be uh, aware, and in some instances, um, you know, we suggest that they don't travel to certain regions. So we do uh, want to be again very sober about. Um, the, the complex world in which we live in, um, but where Canadians' uh, rights are infringed upon, um, we will always call that out and we will always do whatever it takes to defend uh, Canadian interests both here and abroad. If a family member of yours was going to go to China, would you be worried about them though? Well, look, this is not about me personally. This is about um, you know making sure that we defend Canadians. And that's what informed our statement. And that's why we're taking the decisions and the steps, uh, again, to protect the telecommunications sector on which Canadians live out their lives increasingly, uh, to protect our economy, which is a great source of innovation and productivity and growth, and ultimately to defend the Canadian interest. Minister Marco Mendicino, we appreciate your time, sir. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to seeing that legislation when it's ready to help protect Canadian national security. Thank you, Mercedes.
Jaws dropped as Jason Kenney delivered a political bombshell last week, announcing his resignation. He did so despite a razor-thin victory in the leadership review. Now Alberta Conservatives need to find their next leader before next year's election. Former Wild Rose leader Danielle Smith has thrown her hat in the ring and she joins us now. Danielle, welcome to the show. Great to see you. Thank you, Mercedes. Nice to be here. Yo, I remember back in 2015 when you talked about never going into politics again and being done with that sphere. You said you're different now. Things are different now. What's changed for you? I think uh, there was no appetite for from the public for me to be back in politics from the way I left it. When when Jim Prentice and I had a botched effort to try for unity and uh, didn't consult the cat grassroots, we both got severely punished for it. And we ended up with four years of NDP government. And I think what's happened in the meantime is I didn't run away. I went right on to talk radio for six years after that. It was a little bit of a rough ride in my first couple of years on talk radio. But I think we had some wonderful conversations I got to talk to Albertans from all walks of life. I, I really wish I'd had the opportunity to be on radio before I got into politics. It would have made me a better politician. But I think I'm now ready to come back in. I'm, I'm quite concerned at the division that I'm seeing in the conservative movement. And I'm hoping I can be a voice of unity. I was an early adopter of unity, albeit doing the wrong way. I was cheering Brian Jean and Jason Kenney along as they brought the two parties together. And I think the fact that both Brian Jean and I have jumped back in is a measure of just how much we want to keep the conservative movement united in the province. Well, conservatives, both federally and in Alberta, seem to be having this issue of a very deep divides in the conservative movement, arguments over what it looks like, this splintering on the right, which has happened before, and traditionally conservatives lose when you splinter on the right. But having watched what happened to Jason Kenney, where his most formidable foes and enemies were political insiders, what makes you think that you can unite the conservative party in Alberta? You know, I don't know that it was, uh, it's interesting because I think his caucus is surprisingly more united around him. I mean, he, there was a lot of pressure for him to step aside and an interim leader to come in, but he got caucus support. So I, I think that that has to be to be considered. Where, where the premier really lost ground was with the grassroots. And I've been to, to dozens of, of freedom meetings across the, the, the province. And what I've been surprised to see is just how many severely normal Albertans came out and just said, you know, I've drawn a line in the sand. I I just used to reflexively vote conservative, but they went down a path on um, on the issue uh, issues around COVID, where they're interfering with my ability to get a job and keep a job. I can't go and travel and see my family. I couldn't go see my kids uh, play hockey. My kids' mental health is suffering. And that brought out a lot of moms and dads in the 30s and 40s who said, we've got to do something different here. And I, I think the premier maybe miscalculated when he brought in vaccine passports after saying he wasn't going to, what kind of reaction it would have. That's one part. The other thing too is he got a, a very strong mandate from the people in Alberta with the equalization referendum to, to go head-to-head -head battling Ottawa. And I think people feel like he hasn't put that at the forefront. So those are the two issues that have derailed him. There's a, there's a lot that unites the Conservatives still in Alberta, but I would say that it really was more of a grassroots backlash that he miscalculated on. I just want to ask you about the COVID mandates there, because obviously the vaccine passports and, and COVID mandates have been have been controversial. We saw the protest here in Ottawa, um, and it's been been deeply divisive with a lot of anger. But public health officials were also saying vaccination is very important to defeat the pandemic, that it's important to maintain those public health measures. W would you not have taken those? Because a lot of people on the health side of things, experts we interviewed, were criticizing Jason Kenney for opening up too soon and being too lax. 
The vaccine passports never made sense. I mean, we were already beginning to see in July of last year in data from Israel that the number of people who were hospitalized were disproportionately those who were vaccinated. That we, we saw very early on that vaccination wears off. We saw very early on that it wasn't a sterilizing immunity, that you could still get and transmit and get very sick, even if you were vaccinated. And so to create this arbitrary line between Albertans and this arbitrary line beneath, between Canadians to have some uh, members of our society able to have full participation and other members not, I think that that created unnecessary division. The language, I think, is uh, something that uh, conservatives found offensive, at least the freedom-loving conservatives found offensive. And I, I think that it's pretty clear now, after the various waves of Omicron 1 and Omicron 2 and Delta and the number of people who are getting double and triple infected, even though they've been vaccinated, this, this arbitrary division, it makes no sense. And the passports make no sense. And the travel restrictions make no sense. And I'm glad to see. Well, I, I, I hear you on on vaccination not being not being a, a panacea, but but the health data is pretty clear that you get less sick with vaccination, you're less likely to die with vaccination. Uh, I haven't heard disagreement about that in the medical community. I, I think that, but that doesn't mean that somebody shouldn't be allowed to get on a plane if they're unvaccinated, or they shouldn't be allowed to go to a restaurant if they're unvaccinated. And it's those arbitrary rules that I think people got very upset about, and it caused unnecessary division as well. I think there's a different way of approaching it. Most of the people I know who are unvaccinated have have gotten COVID. Some of them have gotten it a couple of times. And I, I think we could have solved this problem if we approached it the same way Europe did, where we recognized natural immunity. If you look at some of the- But, but in Europe, there was all kinds of requirements for vaccine passports. I, I was just there. I was there in, in Ukraine and in Moldova and in Latvia, and there's absolutely a requirement for vaccine passports and lockdowns in a number right. of those European and they, countries. And they, and they acknowledged that natural immunity was also one measure of being able to get your, your passport. And I would have preferred to see that approach. I personally would have preferred to see the approach of, of some of our red state neighbors like Florida and Texas and, uh, and South Dakota, because it became pretty clear by last year who the most impacted Canadians were. It was those who were most at risk, who were over the age of 70, multiple pre-existing conditions in long-term care. We could have taken a more focused approach on that rather than sacrificing our kids. I think that uh, okay. well, I'm, I'm grateful to the premier that he recognized first that the kids were the ones who were the most impacted. And that's why we went in a different direction. And it's a, it's a shame that the rest of the country isn't going as fast. And it's certainly a shame that Ottawa isn't going fast enough on on eliminating those restrictions too. Interesting perspective. Well, Danielle Smith, that's all the time we have, but thank you so much for joining us today. You bet. Thanks, Mercedes. U.S. President Joe Biden traveled to Buffalo, New York last week to grieve with a community that was devastated after 10 black people were killed in a racially motivated shooting at a grocery store. The suspect is an 18-year-old man who is reported to have posted racist extremist views online. Joining us now to discuss this is Amarnath Amarisingham. He's assistant professor at Queen's University and a leading researcher on extremism. Tragic and absolutely terrible story and one that is so important for us to understand. A lot of Canadians see this and they react by saying it doesn't happen here in Canada. It can't happen here in Canada. Of course, we did see the attack in London. We saw the attack in Quebec City. You study this professionally. What are your thoughts on the risk here of it happening and whether young Canadians are being radicalized in the same way? Um, no, I think the risk is here, um, you know, if, if not as much as in the U.S., it's definitely prevalent here. As you mentioned, the Quebec mosque attack was very much influenced by <clears throat> um, similar rhetoric. Uh, the London attack was um, 
influenced by similar rhetoric. Uh, there was similar rhetoric coming out of the trucker convoy in Ottawa. Uh, and if you look at the online space, um, particularly in far right channels on Telegram and other platforms, uh, Canadians are prevalent there. Right? Canadians are present uh, on these platforms, uh, pushing uh, rhetoric much like the great replacement theory um, uh, very vibrantly. Um, and I would also say on, on much more kind of stronger far right platforms like Iron March or Stormfront, there were also Canadians. And so this idea that um, uh, kind of far right presence doesn't exist in Canada, I think, in, uh, is, a, is a result of, you know, blind, uh, willful blindness or at least um, uh, amnesia. <laughs> you, you mentioned great replacement theory, and it's something that it, it is a conspiracy theory. It has been getting increasing traction online and in political circles. Can you walk us through what, what is great replacement theory and who is trying to propagate this? So the Great Replacement conspiracy theory um, basically holds that there is a uh, diabolical plot uh, by uh, Jews or other sinister elites in the country uh, or in the world uh, to um, to basically overrun uh, the white majority, right? So to demographically kind of re-engineer re white majority countries um, to make them minorities in their own country. And uh, this is not simply through kind of organic uh, immigration processes, but there's a kind of deliberate uh, policy making, deli deliberate propaganda being pushed to make this happen. We see this, as you mentioned, online, but it's not something that's being hidden. I mean, it's also on, in, in open channels, in open spaces. And in the case of the shooter in Buffalo, people talked about how he had publicly espoused some of these ideas. What can we learn from his radicalization and how that happened and what red flags might have been missed where authorities could have done something before this tragedy unfolded? Yeah, so this this attack is quite unique because it, for, for researchers like me, it, it actually he actually left behind um, quite a bit of material to comb through, right? So everyone talks about manifestos. Um, there's always been manifestos uh, in in previous attacks. Some of some are short, like the Dylan Roof one was only a few pages. Um, this one, you know, is 180 pages, but uh, a quite a bit of it is a direct copy and paste of previous attackers like the Christchurch shooting, et cetera. What's more interesting um, is he also left behind nearly 700 pages of uh, a kind of Discord diary. And so Discord is a, uh, a gaming adjacent platform. Um, and he seems to have been posting uh, very privately to himself with the eventual, per eventual uh, anticipation of posting this online, um, a kind of day-by-day -day window into his th thought process going back November to November 2021. Um, so it, it gives us a window into how this happens, which I think is relevant for, um, hopefully, for preventing future attacks and kind of removing some of our blind spots of, of, of you know, uh, white, young, young white attackers, because I can guarantee you if this was a young Muslim or a young uh, person of color walking around a grocery store, um, taking pictures and drawing out a map of what the inside of the grocery store looks like, um, it would have resulted in a lot more than uh, a security guard kind of wagging his finger at him. Um, and so I think some of our blind spots of what white terrorism looks like, what far-right terrorism looks like, um, uh, it you know needs to be reassessed. Uh, and uh, that's why I think the Buffalo attack is quite interesting or, or important for um, future counterterrorism. You mentioned hearing some of these kinds of theories and comments coming up around the convoy that was here in Ottawa. Uh, Pierre Polyev, who's a leadership candidate, did an interview last week with Jordan B. Peterson. In it, he said, I speak Anglo-Saxon. That was a very polarizing comment that got a lot of reaction. I'm curious to hear your reaction to what Mr. Polyev said and, and how this is playing out in conservative circles in Canada. 
Yeah, I mean, it was kind of what I was saying earlier, right, is that they might not use the term great replacement, but a lot of the uh, broader ideological components of it um, are expressed in different ways. This notion of white anxiety, uh, you know, old stock Canadians are under threat. Um, you know, Pat King, one of the organizers of the convoy, um, I think may have said great replacement out loud. <laughs> um, and so there, there is um, a, a current of this kind of populist uh, anxiety or demographic panic around uh, increased what in, in, increased immigration means, what changing demographic structures in Canada mean um, for white identity and white community, right? And uh, that 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 is talked about in public um, a lot more openly now than what we're used to. I, I used to have to go literally searching in the dark corners of the internet to find ideological sentiments uh, like what we're seeing on Fox News, on Rebel News, um, from, from the mouths of politicians uh, and, and even some of the leaders in Europe, right? And so uh, th th there's definitely a kind of mainstreaming going on of some of these ideas, which I think um, contributes to um, what, what, what terrorism researchers call uh, stochastic terrorism, which is you turn up the temperature enough um, for a large amount of people um, and there's going to be more likelihood that at least one of them will mobilize into violence, right? And so the mainstreaming of it um, does spill over into potential violence if we're not careful. Amar, that's all the time we have for today. But thank you so much for joining us with your insight and your research. We appreciate it. Thank you. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back here next Sunday. I'm Mercedes Stevenson for The West Block. Mm -hmm.